Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise this morning because you've paid it all for us. You meet us in our need. You meet us in a way that only your grace can. You fill us when we're empty and you give us hope when there is none. So we're thankful to you. We're thankful for the gift that your word is to us. May you use it to teach us and enlighten us more to who you are and what you do for us. In your name I pray, amen. You may be seated. All right, I want you to imagine this scenario with me. Uh, it is spring. Someone said it feels like February, but uh, that's for another day. But imagine it, that it's Thanksgiving. Kind of feels like Thanksgiving. All right, imagine it's Thanksgiving. Not too hard. And you're with extended family. So you've got aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents and grandchildren all gathered together. And uh, like most of you, uh, or some of you, if, if, you're, if you have enough thinking ahead in your wheelhouse, you're like, you've not eaten breakfast intentionally you skipped breakfast and now it's 11 30 in the morning and all of those smells from the kitchen are starting to fill your nose the turkey and the mashed potatoes and the stuffing and the gravy some of you need to wipe the drool off your face right now (laughs) right but all those are hitting you and it's making you realize just how hungry you are and so how relieved you must be when the dinner bell rings and when the prayers are said and now you're filling your plate that's a good feeling. That's a good place to be. There's something satisfying when something empty becomes full, whether it's a hungry stomach or an empty gas tank. There's just that ah moment that happens when something goes from empty to full. And I don't mean overly full, like when you go back for that third piece of pie, that would be stuffed. Okay, that's different. But aside from those practical examples, life also gives us plenty of times of fullness and emptiness. Each of us have had seasons where we feel empty and we need to be filled up. All of you have had times where you're on the opposite of that. Your cup is brimming, it's overflowing. But it's in those times of emptiness and those seasons of emptiness that we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness, that, that he walks with us, that he is still at work, that he's still remaining the source of true fulfillment. And so this morning, as we move into looking into God's Word, we're going to be starting just a very brief four-week sermon series looking at the Old Testament book of Ruth. We're calling this series, Empty to Full. And so if you've heard of Ruth before, or if you've heard her story, or if you imagine this character, there's a few details that probably come to mind already for you. First, we think of maybe Ruth's unwavering loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Or you might think of her love story with a guy named Boaz, Or how her story ties into the greater story that scripture gives us as it points us to the family that will eventually deliver the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so all of those things are true, but this story that we're going to look at for the next four weeks, it's more than just a genealogy record, and it's way better than just a love story that you might watch on the Hallmark Channel. This is a story of God moving through time and history and circumstances to accomplish his will and to show his faithfulness to humanity. And so in this series, what we're going to see, we're going to see how God accomplishes his purpose and his purposes through just the natural order of life and through human interaction. We're going to see how God is going to prove his faithfulness and his provision and his care and his sovereignty and his generosity and his kindness and his personal commitment to you and to me as he time and time again guides the action in this story for the good and for the benefit of his people and for the fulfillment of his promises, what he says he will do. And we're going to see that only God can provide the means and the resources necessary to fill 
what is empty. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 1 today, and we're going to kind of split it up into different sections. This is a narrative story, and so we're going to read it as such and kind of talk about this as we go through. We're going to have it in several different chunks, and so we're going to start with just the first five verses of Ruth 1. If you can look in your own Bibles, or the words will appear on the screen as well. Starting in Ruth chapter 1, reading verses 1 through 5, reads like this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, so right away we're told that the setup of all of these things that takes place, it takes place in a time in Israel's history, the quote is, when the judges ruled. Now if we think about that time in Israel's history, if you're familiar with Old Testament, that was not a time that would have been a very like two thumbs up sort of thing for the people of Israel. That was a very dark time. For God's people. It was a time that was filled with conflict and tension. They were always at war. It was a time that was filled with idolatry and moral decay among God's people. It was not a very good time. And the one last statement that really describes this really well actually comes in the last verse of the book of Judges. And it reads like this In those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. Now, on one hand, that sounds kind of nice. And on the other hand, if everybody's doing that, That's not a good recipe for anything good or productive. And so we're introduced, before we're introduced to Ruth, the namesake of the book, we're introduced to her family, her extended in-law family. We're introduced to the family of Naomi, her husband Elimelech, her two sons, Malon and Kilion from the town of Bethlehem in the kingdom of Judah. And we're told that Naomi and her family left their homeland. They left Bethlehem and to go to Moab because of the severe famine that had struck and it left them in search of food. And it had left them in search of better farmland. Now it's important for us to note that Moab was not a part of the promised land that God had given to his people through Moses and Joshua. It was on the outskirts of where God had intended his people to live. But Naomi and Elimelech settled there and they raised their family. We're told that their sons even married two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. You have no no idea how many times my Word document tried to correct Orpah to Oprah. And so I will try to say it as such, and so you can catch me and in your head go, oh, there it is. Okay, so just play with me here. Now, even though they left in search of better times, the the hardships and the tragedy continues to follow this family because not long after their arrival in Moab, we read that Naomi's husband dies. And 10 years after that, both of Naomi's sons die as well, leaving her and Orpah and Ruth as childless widows. So needless to say, for these three, this is an incredibly unfortunate and challenging position to be in. First of all, for Naomi, she is still technically a foreigner. She's living in a a foreign country. She has no family around to take care of her or to provide for her. She has lost her family. She has lost her family name. She's pretty much lost all hope, and she's on the brink of pure emptiness. And the news is not really any better for Orpah or Ruth because in a patriarchal society, if you're left without a husband, 
that's kind of a big deal. And unless you can go back home and have your family take care of you, or you can perhaps remarry, but that would have been challenging for these two. They had been married already for some time. And so things look pretty bleak for these three. This new reality that they were facing and kind of looking ahead didn't look very hopeful or promising at all. But we continue, starting in verse 6, reading through verse 18 in this story. We read in verse 6, When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show, show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. All right, so we come to verse 6, and we're told that Naomi hears some somewhat hopeful news. She hears that the famine back home is over, that there is a harvest, that God has provided food again for his people, that things were beginning to turn around, and so she prepares to head back. And she prepares to head back initially with her two daughters-in-law, but as they make preparations to begin their journey back, before they get too far into the journey, Naomi has to confront and try to convince her daughters-in-law to stay behind. And now common sense would have said that that was a really logical and beneficial option for them, for her to suggest that. And it's not that she's just trying to get rid of them. We know that Naomi loved her daughters-in-law. She calls them her daughters, as if they were her own. She cared for them a great deal, but she knew that they were going to have a better chance staying in their home country, being cared for by their own family, and perhaps even finding another husband. That's what she hopes happens to them. Because she knows that if they were to accompany her back to Bethlehem, that they would be the ones who would be considered outsiders and potentially jeopardize their future. So Naomi wishes God's richest and kindest blessings on them. They had been a blessing to her. They had shown kindness to her family. And she tries to send them on their way, but they refuse to leave. We read that they were weeping uncontrollably. They couldn't bear the thought of leaving Naomi. They essentially say as much. They're like, Naomi, we will go back with you. Don't make us leave you alone. It's an incredible display of affection and, and loyalty from both of these daughters-in-law. And essentially, if you're thinking, what that means is, is that for you and I, is there is hope that you can have a really good positive relationship with your in-laws. 
And some of you are like, yeah, right, you haven't met my mother-in-law, okay? But all joking aside, this is incredible. Think about the position that Naomi is in. She's broken. She is empty. She has little to no hope. Her faith is literally hanging on by a thread. And yet there must have been something about her that kind of drew these two, Orpah and Ruth, to grow to appreciate and value and love her throughout the years that they were together as a family that caused them to go well beyond what would have been any sort of expectation on them to care for her care for her, and provide for her. So Naomi continues to try and reason with them. And I mean, I'm sure she appreciated their kindness and like, oh, that's sweet, you're gonna go with me. But the discouragement and the despair that she was feeling, that she was experiencing in her own life really caused her to cast a lot of doubt and discouragement on the seemingly hopeless options that were out there for them. And Naomi tries to paint this picture for her daughters-in-law. She kind of just says it like it is. She's like, there are no more sons for you to marry. What would have typically happened in this situation is if a young woman were to lose her husband, the brother of that husband would step in and be like a surrogate father to attempt to produce a male heir to carry on the family name. But Naomi's saying that there are no more sons and there are no more brothers for Orpah or Ruth. And and she's almost humorously wondering aloud to herself, she's like, if she even did remarry that day and nine months later had two sons, would they really wait around for them to be of marriageable age? And what would that do? Would they even be old enough or young enough rather to have children at that point? From Naomi's perspective, it was absolutely pointless for them to continue traveling with her. And so at this point, we are, we're told that Orpah says goodbye. She kisses Naomi goodbye and leaves, heads back to Moab. And you could look at that one of two ways. On a positive note, she's being respectful. She's doing what she was told. What, she's, opening, she's open to the wishes of her mother-in-law. And also at the same time, her loyalty and her devotion are different than what we see with Ruth. Ruth is defiant and disobedient in a good way, I suppose. She's feisty. Ruth launches into this very famous plea to Naomi that pledges her lifelong loyalty and her devotion to her because not only is Ruth going to travel with her back to Bethlehem, but she's going to stay with her. She's going to live with her and take care of her. She's going to literally join Naomi's family and culture and heritage. She's going to worship and serve the one true God of Israel, and she's going to be with Naomi to the end. And so the continued irony here that we're seeing between Naomi and Ruth is that this genuine expression of faith and loyalty that Ruth shows is the opposite of what's currently seen from Naomi. And so seeing just how determined and set Ruth is on her decision, Naomi kind of gives up the fight and stops trying to convince Ruth to, to, to stay. Continue reading the end of this chapter, verses 19 through 22. We read, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So Naomi and Ruth return, they arrive in Bethlehem, and Naomi quickly realizes and learns just how much things have changed. First of all, there's a buzz in the town because the famine is over and that there's food again. That's a good thing. But secondly, there's a buzz in the town because Naomi has returned. 
And people can see how much she has changed. Her situation is completely different. She left with a husband and two sons and now has returned a widow. She left with some hope and aspiration that Moab might be better and now she's returned defeated and dejected. And Bethlehem's your classic small town. It's your classic small church. Everybody knows everybody's business. Everybody knows what's going on. And they're talking and the rumors are starting. Could this be Naomi? No, it couldn't be her, could it? What happened to her? I told her it was a bad idea to leave. This change, whatever it was, was evident in Naomi. It was evident in her personality. It was evident in her appearance. The hardships that she had experienced over the past 10 years had really taken their toll, almost to the fact and the point that she was kind of unrecognizable in many ways. Now, this is probably the equivalent. Some of you get this a little bit. You, you show up to a, like a 10-year gap in your high school reunion, and you go, I don't know anybody here, except you went to school with them for like 12 years, right? Or you, you meet somebody, and you're like, oh, that's you? I would have never, never recognized you. We get that to some degree. But for Naomi, this was more than just some, some more gray hair or a little extra weight or a few added wrinkles. This Moab experience, this being away from her homeland, this emptiness that she is feeling absolutely has obliterated her hope and her joy. She essentially says as much in in verse 20. She says, don't even call me Naomi. Call me Mara because the Lord has made my life very bitter. And it's in this statement that we kind of see the depths of just how far Naomi has fallen and how this stands in contrast to Ruth's perspective. And this isn't meant to hype Ruth or to elevate her, but God's word is intentional in showing us Ruth's genuine faith, this genuine hope that comes from God and this unwavering commitment and loyalty that she is living out. And for Naomi, all she can see is this sense of hopelessness or despair or emptiness or bitterness. She finishes her statement in verse 21. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty, so why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi sees the Lord's hand in her misfortune. Whether it's a direct consequence to something, it's not for us to say, but God is allowing these events to take place and to transpire. And Naomi recognizes this. She recognizes God's power, his authority, his sovereignty in this situation. And like many of us do, when we're going through challenging times or difficult situations, we find ourselves looking to God and wondering, the classic, why? From Naomi's perspective, she is empty. She has nothing. She says it. I went away full and I came back empty. Now the advantage that we have is seeing this kind of from a bigger perspective and we can see that Naomi's short-sighted in this, that she's wrong. On a very practical level, we'll learn later in this story that Naomi has a parcel of land that she inherits and is inherited from her dead husband and Hello, she's got this incredible daughter-in-law that has journeyed back with her and is committed to living with her and taking care of her. And so imagine how Ruth feels. She's standing right there and Naomi's like, yeah, I came back back empty. I have nothing. Hello? But as hopeless as Naomi's life may seem to her, we see and are told and know already that God is beginning the job of taking her emptiness, which she feels and seems to be empty, and filling it with his goodness. He's already begun that process because in her return to Bethlehem, God has been and he will continue to be the main actor in displaying his love and his loyalty and his care for not just Naomi, but also her family in the days and the months ahead. 
So as we consider this chapter, if we, as we consider what we know and have learned about this story, I wonder how it aligns with your story. Maybe if this chapter was a mirror that you were just holding up to your life, maybe you see some similar patterns that are present for you. We're calling this series Empty to Full, but you'll notice that it was turned around in this chapter, right? That everything seemed to be the opposite. As Naomi declares that she's been brought back empty and depleted. So how about you? Have there been times in your life where hardship and tragedy have struck and it just has just sapped your joy and your hope? Have there been times where bitterness has really gained a foothold in your life and it's kind of clouded your view or your perspective on life? Have there been times when the reality of your sin just has crushed you to the point of leaving you feeling like you're helpless or hopeless? Have there been times in your life that you would just downright classify as empty? Perhaps you've had times like that in your life. Perhaps you're in a season of emptiness right now. Those aren't very fun times. Oftentimes we kind of just want to just snap our fingers and make them go away. And in those times, perhaps you felt and found yourself wondering, like Naomi, God, where are you in all of this? Or what's the purpose here? But as we've seen so far in this opening chapter, this story isn't the only story that we see unfolding. God himself is weaving himself into the fabric of this story. God has been the one that is overseas, is overseeing and guiding and shaping these events in a way that is going to reveal his kindness and his goodness and his generosity and his provision and his love and his care. And so for Naomi, the return home, the return to her homeland is really the start of a new beginning for her. It's a fresh start for her. Because no matter what happened in Moab, she had found herself coming back home. She was humbled. She had heard that God had shown his goodness in Bethlehem again, and she knew that she had to go back and be a part of that. And that's an incredible reminder for us to think about this morning. We're reminded that through his grace, God is a God of new beginnings, and he's a God of fresh starts. When the hardships and challenges of life come and they try to steal our hope and our joy, God's presence is there to remind us that he is faithful, that he is present, and that he's still working for our good. When sin leads us far away and it can make us feel alone or isolated or bitter or empty, God's grace is constantly there. It invites us back and it fills us up. Naomi's story kind of parallels another one that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, about a son who left his father, who left his homeland, hoping for a better life. We know that this son, he thought his life at home was really empty and really incomplete, so he thought, oh, if I just had a chance to figure this out on my own, I can find true fulfillment. But all he found was hardship and disaster. And it was one day where he was literally in the pit feeding pigs. It dawns on him to wonder and ask the question, could I come home? Should I go back home? Could I go back home? The son knew that his father was really kind and generous and good. And so he thought, even if my father ends up being really mad at me for leaving, perhaps he would let me just kind of work for him in the background. Because even that's way better than what I've got right now. And so he sets out and he journeys back home. And Jesus tells us that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him, he recognized him, he recognized the walk. 
And Jesus tells us that the father runs to his son. He runs to him and he embraces him. And he holds him close. He's got tears of joy running down his face because his son has come home. And instead of responding in anger and returning the bitterness, the father instead welcomes his son home. He throws him a party. He reinstates him as a member of the family. That's this son's story. That's Naomi's story. That's your story and mine too. That's what God does and has done in your life and in mine. Because we are loved by a God who welcomes sinners, who radically forgives people like you and me who just make a mess of our lives and we're really good at it. He loves sinners who don't deserve a fresh start. We're loved by a God who fills our emptiness. He's going to do this for Naomi. He's going to do this for Ruth. He's going to do this in your life too as you look to his grace and his mercy. And so we see this chapter end on somewhat of a high note. This is a positive point. We read in the end of verse 22 that Naomi and Ruth arrive in Bethlehem as the barley harvest is just beginning. And that's going to come into play in the the next few chapters. But we leave it here, and I think the author leaves it here too. It's another reminder of God's provision. It's another reminder of his faithfulness in the way that he's always and he's continuously working for our benefit and it reminds us that he is alone, is the one who can truly take what is empty and bring it to overflowing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your goodness to us, for the promises that are found in your word where we recognize that often there are times in our life where We just make a mess of our life, whether it's through sin or just the hardships and circumstances that are all around us. There are seasons and times where we can feel empty. And yet we know and look to the promises that you give us that you are here to be near to us, to journey with us through those times, and that you are the one that fills us up. You fill us up with undeserved mercy and grace when we don't deserve it. You fill us up with just everyday blessings. And so we're thankful to you. May we continue to give you the glory and the praise for those things, to see you evident and working in our life. We're thankful for the ways that you speak to us through your word. In your name I pray, amen. Hear the words of the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.